Ah, just listen. Do you hear that? No, exactly. Why, that's calm silence. No alarms or yelling or gunfire to disturb your peaceful prisoner of war camp. Or thanks to fluoride and the wonders of modern chemistry. We here at IG Farben Chemical are committed to making your prisoner internment experience the best it can be. With allied troops at your doorstep, you don't have time or resources to waste on controlling prisoner behaviors and activities. Why have your soldiers controlling riots and preventing escape attempts when they could be at the front lines, gaining ground and winning the new territories for the Empire? With a little bit of fluoride in the drinking water, your prisoners will quickly become more docile and compliant. Here at our test facility, our prisoner subjects have given up completely. We don't even lock the door anymore. Oh, just look at that silly prisoner. He's smiling because he doesn't know where he is, and he doesn't care. IG Farman is here to service all your water fluoridation needs. Prisoner camps, occupied territories, and even whole countries can be subdued. Don't let the Allies gain the upper hand. What's that? The Russians are fluoridating too, you say? Don't worry. We guarantee the exceptional quality and purity of our fluoridation additives. And we assure you that they are better and more reliable than anything the other guy has. At least... That's what I hear. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theory Alpha. On this episode, Episode 16, The Fluoride Conspiracy. What is water fluoridation and what conspiratorial suspicions have arisen on the topic? What is the history behind the push to add this otherwise naturally occurring chemical to water supplies? Does the world share universal interest and support of water fluoridation or are the concerns proving valid? Well, after the break, we will fill our cup with information drink in the conspiracy, and quench our thirst for answers on the controversial topic of water fluoridation. Howdy, theriologists. All right, let's talk fluoride conspiracy. Water fluoridation is a a hot-button topic that has proven controversial since the practice began in the 40s. 
the suspicion that rather than the stated purpose of preventing tooth decay, water fluoridation is a practice of involuntary medication and experimentation and a conspiracy of social engineering that it is at best driven by industrial lobbying to make profitable the, the sale of industrial waste. And at worst, a concerted effort to affect cognitive function and advance control over a more docile population through chemically induced compliance. So let's start with some of the background, maybe the origins. How about the origin of the conspiracies itself? So the initial conspiracy theories, which surfaced in the 40s and 50s, revolved around communist plots that convert America to socialist and communist thinking through forced medication and socialized medicine. Water fluoridation was joined by forced vaccinations and involuntary medication of mental health patients. I mean, these are still issues uh, being discussed today. This politically charged theory helped to defeat many public referendums on fluoridation within communities and uh, preventing the practice until much later. Uh, this theory fell out of favor, it, it seems, really by the 1960s as, as administrations changed and public perception of political motivations also shifted. Many in the anti-fluoridation camp felt anyway that the conspiratorial claims hurt their position, and uh, it was not a true representation of the issue. And we'll get more to what, you know, what that means in, in, uh, in a bit. The second conspiracy, um, which is the uh, more poignant and, and inflammatory one, is the one made um, by Ian E. Stevens um, in the what uh, what is known as the Dickinson Statement. Uh, it's a thesis that was self-published originally by Stevens in 1987. It received subsequent attention and notoriety when it was reprinted in the September 1995 issue of Nexus Magazine. Now, here are uh, here here's a section of it that I think kind of kind of covers the gist of the conspiracy presented in this overall statement on fluoridation. Quote, at, at the end of the Second World War, the United States government sent Charles Elliot Perkins, a research worker in chemistry, biochemistry, physiology, and pathology, to take charge of the vast Farben chemical plant in Germany. While there, uh, he was told by German chemists of a scheme which had been worked out by them during the war and adopted by the German general staff. This was to control the population in any given area through mass medication of drinking water. In this scheme, sodium fluoride occupied a prominent place. Repeated doses of infinitesimal amounts of fluoride will in time reduce an individual's power to resist domination by slowly poisoning and uh, narcotizing a certain area of the brain and will thus make him submissive to the will of those who wish to govern him. Both the Germans and the Russians added sodium fluoride to the drinking water of prisoners of war camps to make them stupid and docile, end quote. All right, well, you get it. And, and obviously that's the, uh, that's the inspiration for the introduction to the podcast. And as an aside, please, uh, any of my uh, German-speaking listeners, forgive the horrible accent, uh, it's fun to do, but my German accent's probably the worst one. 
uh, still, it was a good excuse to use it. Um, now, as far as the Dickens, uh, the Dickinson statement, you know, this is an extensive thesis, and, and really, I'm not going to go over everything with it other than that that piece. I mean, suffice to say that this conspiracy theory ties together chemical experimentation of, of Nazi Germany, uh, the American MK Ultra project, uh, American and other global industry leaders in manufacturing and, and, uh, and chemical industry, and of course, the money and power trail for companies and politicians. You, you can find the whole thing in uh, down in the show notes. I've, I've got a link to it. Um, and, and it's also just not hard to find with a Google search. Well, now that you've got the, the background on the, uh, on the conspiracy theories and, and really the origins for where they come from, before we move into the theoryology, let's, let's actually understand the practice of water fluoridation, period. We, we know that our drinking water has fluoride in it, but what does that actually mean? Well... First, fluoride is a naturally occurring element, and it can be found in various concentrations in groundwater, depending upon location, uh, whether it's added artificially or not. So when we say fluoridation, we mean the increase in fluoride concentration within a drinking water source through the addition of a soluble substance that dissolves into, uh, into the water and into fluoride. Community water systems in the U.S. use one of three additives for water fluoridation. Decisions on which additive to use are based on cost of product, product handling requirements, space availability, and equipment. The three additives are fluorosilic acid, which is a water-based solution used by most of the water systems in, uh, in the United States. Fluorosilic acid is also referred to as hydrofluorosilicate, FSA, or HFS. Um, We'll use it, we'll most often refer to it as, as uh, FSA. Uh, second is sodium fluorosilicate, which is a dry salt additive, and it's dissolved into a solution before being added to the water. And then finally, sodium fluoride, which is a dry salt additive and typically used in, in small water systems. And it's, it's dissolved into a solution before being added into the water. Now, most, uh, most of the... Um, Fluoride additives used in the in the United States are are produced from uh, phosphorite rock. Now, phosphorite contains calcium phosphate mixed with limestone, uh, which is calcium carbonates, minerals, and uh, uh, apatite, apatite, uh, which is a, a mineral with high phosphate and fluoride content. It is uh, refluxed, which is, means it's heated with sulfuric acid to produce a, a phosphoric acid gypsum slurry. Um, the phosphoric and fluoride gases the, that are released in the process are then separated. The fluoride gas is captured and used to create the fluorosilic acid. That's, <laughs> that's a lot of chemistry there to break it down, but ultimately that's how you get the, the fluoride compound that's, uh, that's then added to the process. Um, now, according to the American Water Works Association uh, Standards Committee on Fluorides, the sources of fluoride products used for water fluoridation in the United States are as follows. Uh, approximately 90% are produced during the process of extracting phosphate from phosphoric ore. 
another 5% comes from the production of hydrogen fluoride or sodium fluoride. And, and the final 5% comes from the purification of high-quality quartz. So those are typically the, uh, the mining industries that, uh, that produce that. Now, since the early 50, 1950s, FSA, uh, fluorosilic acid, has been the main additive used for water fluoridation in the U.S. Uh, the favorable cost and high purity of FSA apparently makes it the popular additive. Uh, sodium fluorosilicate and sodium fluoride come from processing FSA uh, or from processing hydrogen fluoride. FSA can be partially neutralized by either uh, table salt, which is sodium chloride, or caustic soda to get sodium fluorosilicate. If enough caustic soda is added to completely neutralize the fluorosilicate, um, the result is sodium fluoride. So about 90% of the sodium fluoride used in the United States, remember that's that dry salt, comes from uh, the fluorosilic acid anyway and that neutralization process. <clears throat> so, you know, there you go. And that's the extent we're going to talk about all of the chemistry of it. But you get the idea. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a chemistry experiment. It's a science experiment to produce this, this product. And, of course, then it dissolves into the water and, and it's ingested. Now, it, it's, it's nice to know the source of the fluoride, but we are talking about adding stuff to our drinking water, ultimately. So, who's in charge of monitoring this process? Well, in the U.S., it's the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. Now, I can hear the conspiratorial wheels spinning for, for all of y'all, and um, <laughs> maybe not unwarranted. Uh, fluoridated community water systems adjust fluoride per EPA guidelines to approximately 0.7 milligrams per liter uh, because in some rare locations, fluoride is naturally present in water in, in much higher levels. The EPA has established a maximum, uh, maximum contaminant level, MCL, for fluoride. And, and that contain, uh, maximum level is set at 4.0 milligrams per liter uh, which is parts also parts per million. So <clears throat> let me say that again. Their target um, for fluoridated community water systems is to 0.7 milligrams per liter. And that's actually set at the, uh, per the, uh, per Health and Human Services, HHS, uh, in order to um, provide the, their, their recommended maximum benefits while reducing possibility of dental fluorosis, which we'll get into in a little bit. But, um, but the EPA, their standards is simply overall safety and their level is maximum level for that is much higher at the 4.0 milligrams per liter. Additionally, because public water supplies are used in manufacturing and food processing industries, the FDA has some regulatory oversight. Uh, though they don't, have uh, oversight in the water supply additives, they do regulate fluoride levels in things like bottled water and in household products such as toothpaste and mouthwash. So that's the, there's the regulatory side of it. And we've got the chemistry out of the way. Now that you know all that, how does it work? You know, if we're putting fluoride in the water, how does it work? Well, 
Research has shown that when fluoride is present in a person's oral environment, in other words, it's in the mouth, it assists with a remineralization process. And here's how. So fluoride ions in a person's mouth, uh, like the fluoridated drinking water or or toothpaste or, or mouthwashes, rinses, it gets absorbed and deposited as a thin layer onto the surface of teeth in areas where demineralization, uh, which is decay, tooth decay uh, and decay formation has occurred. That step alone is a, is a, is a positive thing, right? So remineralization replaces, uh, which is the replacement of lost mineral content. And then this is on the enamel, right? The outside of your tooth. And that's occurring in that case. But, um, you know, something to, to note is that some of the components being deposited is, is fluoride as opposed to the type of minerals that are originally lost, like calcium. Now, once the fluoride has been deposited onto the tooth surface, it actually attracts other minerals, like calcium, to the damaged area. So we start out with a deposit of fluoride, which then attracts other minerals. Uh, this attraction provides two benefits, um, according to uh, right the research and the and uh, the proponent argument. It speeds up the rate of remineralization, which is the reformation and repair of tooth mineral, and it also raises the degree to which this process takes place, which it helps create a higher level of repair and a harder remineralized surface. At least that's the claim. And that's, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. That's, that's the fluoridation process. But look, let's look at this by the numbers, you know? So we know fluoride works, but what's the current usage? You know, what's the current usage in the U.S. and even globally? So currently, most developed nations don't even use, don't fluoridate their water. The numbers I found in Western Europe, for example, only 3% of the population consumes fluoridated water. You know, while... 25 countries uh, have water fluoridation programs. Actually, 11 of those countries have less than 20% of their population consuming fluoridated water. You know, a quick list, countries like Argentina and Guatemala, so a lot of South America, Central America, uh, Papua New Guinea, Peru, Serbia, Spain, South Korea, uh, the UK, and, uh, and Vietnam. So there's 11 countries then there's 11 that do less than 20%. And then there's another 11 in the world that have more than 50% of their population drinking fluoridated water. And those are the biggies. And those are actually where you're going to see all of this discussion and legislation going on. Australia has 80% of the population on it. Chile has 70%. Guyana, 62%. Hong Kong, 100%. Uh, the Irish Republic, so Ireland, 73%. Israel, 70%. Malaysia, 75%. New Zealand, 62%. Singapore, 100%. And the U.S. is at 64%. In total, the numbers that that I was able to find, oh, about 3.8 million people worldwide uh, drink artificially fluoridated water. And, uh, you know, that number, depending on what you're using, uh, looking at, 3 to 5% of the world's population. There are more people drinking fluoridated water in the United States than in the entire rest of the world combined, you know, and, and that's a claim. You know, the CDC itself boasts that 60% of the U S population receiving fluoridated water. 
all of those numbers reflect the idea of artificially fluoridated water sources being used. That does not reflect the consumption of fluoridated water or of water with fluoride present because uh, of wells and water sources that are natural that naturally contain fluoride. So we're talking specifically about about artificially fluoridated water systems. That's the huge background there. Uh, and now you kind of had a better understanding when you're hearing these these discussions of fluoride and and the Facebook posts and the Twitter posts popping up and and the pros and cons or or the dentist trips and all of that stuff discussing fluoride. That's what it does. I mean, that's that's the chemistry behind it. That's the usage in place, and uh, and of course some of the uh, history on on the uh, conspiracy theories around it. But let's look at the proponents. I mean, who's actually talking about this? Well, in the U.S., obviously it has tremendous support within government agencies and and professional associations. The American Dental Association from their website. Uh, I thought this kind of summed up the position that the proponents have very well. More than 70 years of scientific research has consistently shown that an optimal level of fluoride in community water is safe and effective in preventing tooth decay by at least 25% in both children and adults. Simply by drinking water, Americans can benefit from fluoride's cavity protection, whether they are at home, work, or school. And there's a lot of information on fluoride that could be found there. Uh, they do have a giant, like, 400-page book, but uh, it has to be purchased. Uh, but apparently it's the, you know, all things fluoride. Of course, other organizations for information, websites, the Center for De- Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, uh, the EPA, as we talked about before, and uh, the World Health Organization. Uh, they have their own uh, levels and requirements. Uh, between those three agencies right there, much of the world uh, makes their uh, decisions and um, and gets reference to that. Now, there are some primary opposition resources or resources if you would like to look into those. Uh, the big one is the is fluoridealert.org, uh, which is home of the Fluoride Action Network, and that was formed in in 2000. And ultimately, it seeks to end water fluoridation. Uh, and there there's a slew of information. Interestingly enough, if Make sure you go to fluoridealert.org for the Fluoride Action Network. If you go to the .com version, that actually maps you back over and shoots you to the ADA. Another biggie here for information is the National Research Council, and uh, which is a, a big research group that's part of uh, an overall uh, like National Academies system. And it's it's important because in 2006... The NRC released an extensive, very extensive and impactful review of EPA standards and guidelines on fluoride. I mean, this was a key driver in the review and and reduction in permissible fluoride quantities by the EPA. They they drastically changed at that point. Seven we were talking about earlier, that actually used to be the bottom of a range that they uh, that they recommended, which was 0.7 up to 1.2. After this uh, National Research Council uh, review, the EPA revisited their guidelines and simply said, okay, we're, we're just putting it at a 0.7. Uh, 
I'm not going to go through that. Uh, but again, that's something that's that's linked in the show notes and it can be found. And I might even discuss it further over at the uh, at the Patreon page and just kind of walk through some of the key areas uh, because it it talked it just touched on everything everything from measures of exposure effects of fluoride on teeth uh, muscular skeletal effects uh, reproductive and developmental effects neurotoxicity and neurobehaviors uh, effects on the endocrine system uh, the gastrointestinal renal uh, hepatic uh, hepatic and the immune systems and on and on and on it just it was a it was a in depth study. So yeah, I mean, those are key sources. There's obviously a myriad of others that discuss it. And actually, I didn't go through and list, but there was a slew of, of uh, various uh, dentists, orthodontists, uh, and dental health professionals. You know, everybody's got a website now. And actually, the the opinions and positions on fluoride vary from practice to practice. Uh, from dentist to dentist. So there's actually, I I found a lot of good information as I was trying to research this and get a full understanding of this scope Uh, and seeing dentists from all over the States and uh, dentists actually all over the world that have different approaches to it. Some that uh, promote fluoride, some that, that uh, don't and reflect alternatives. Um, I just simply had to draw the line with this, with this episode for the sake of, of time and, and, uh, flow, uh, that, uh, that we didn't get off onto that, onto those rabbit trails and start discussing all of those different aspects, but it's interesting. So we've got ourselves a background, an extensive background on this and origins of, of the conspiracy theory, because of course we don't want to forget those. So let's jump into finally our theoryology, you know, what is the theoryology on this stuff? Well, looking first at the theory of the socialist agenda. I mean, that was prevalent in the 40s, 50s, 60s. This theory really gained its momentum through a number of factors present at really uh, since the inception of fluoridation as a practice. Beginning of the 20th century, right, early 1900s, uh, there was a surgeon at the U.S. Marine Hospital in Naples, Italy that observed otherwise healthy men and women whose teeth really had been mottled brown with staining. There was even a term for it there in Italy, translating as uh, black teeth and written upon teeth uh, due to the black lines running horizontally across the teeth. This, uh, This surgeon hypothesized a connection to the local drinking water. Now that same year, uh, in 19, around 1901, a dentist in Colorado Springs, Colorado, whose name is Frederick McKay, began investigating what he called the Colorado stain. He observed the same modeled staining uh, of teeth in adults and upwards of 80% of the town's school-aged children. This was observed throughout communities in Colorado, regardless of wealth and demographic. It was just an overall problem. Uh, by and, and the research continued, uh, McKay pursued. And by 1915, through collaboration at Northwestern University, he published a series of papers postulating that the defects began early during childhood tooth development. Now, in 1927, McKay honed in on, on drinking water as the culprit when, on a trip to Naples, Italy, you remember Naples? Uh when he, where he observed that one district uh, in that area no longer showed evidence of 
the black teeth. I mean, it was discovered that this community had switched the source of its water supply. In 1931, McKay was called to Bucksite, Arkansas, to examine stained teeth in children. So we've got this progression, right? We're already 30 years into it, and we've gone <laughs> to from Naples to the U.S., back to Naples, and now back into the U.S. So this community of, of Bauxite uh, was supplied by a water well, while, the, while neighboring communities were on river water, and they had no such staining. So the chief chemist... Huh, okay, here's where this gets interesting. Uh, and Bauxite, if, if you're curious about the name, Bauxite is a, is a, a mineral. Um, and it's named after, this is what they call a, a mining town, okay? So the chief chemist for Alcoa, which is the aluminum mining company of America, and Alcoa, which employed most of the community, had a, uh, a lot of incentive to assist in the exploration of this, of this staining in order to determine the cause and alleviate concerns of the aluminum production uh, sourced pollution. And uh, the results, they really appeared obvious according to the findings of, their, of this chemist. The water contained high natural concentrations of fluoride, upwards of 13.2 parts per million, which was around 26 times average in the country. So all of that, all of that history, after 30 years of research, the Colorado stain had been identified and dubbed as dental fluorosis, tooth decay, um, and, and, and brittling. Now, of course, <laughs> with research like this I mean, alone, right, that by itself, the public perceptions would not be expected to be positive, uh, nor would anyone really even suggest adding fluoride to the water. Actually, in fact, the early research focused on removal. They identified a problem. They were concerned with, well, how do you get this, this excessive fluoride out of the water, at least down to acceptable levels? But, ah, but along with these discoveries, uh, there was an apparent correlation between this model teeth and fewer cavities. <laughs> the news outlets, they had a boom of reporting regarding the apparent reduction in tooth decay associated with fluoride. Um, and really, quickly, the idea was, was cemented in public imagination in general. Um, absent uh, in much of the reporting was the very low threshold recommended in order to promote uh, benefits while avoid, avoiding fluorosis. Uh, and that was that they were talking about a maximum of 1.0 part, 1 parts per million. Uh, so... Now we've got this we've got this frenzy, this public frenzy of addressing tooth decay uh and cavities. Uh mind you, that's a that's a severe problem, uh, even up through that, you know, the turn of the twentieth uh, century, um, because tooth decay, tooth pain, cavities leads to um leads to a myriad of problems. You know, you have people that don't eat properly, poor nutrition, and um susceptibility to infection and the like. So now, enter Grand Rapids, Michigan, in 1945. This is our starting line. Grand Rapids became the first community to artificially fluoridate the water supply. 
and there was an apparent 55% reduction in tooth decay found in the children. Thus began the ongoing battle. Right? Some communities took these results completely at face value and demanded adoption of the practice, uh, while others would resist, and led by some opposition groups that, uh, that arose around this research. Pointing to incomplete studies and, and really the apparent willingness of the U.S. government to allow communities to act as guinea pigs for this new health experiment, suspicions formed. Some simply uh, viewed fluoridation as government overreach. Others, they saw a more sinister attempt, slowly chipping away at, at personal sovereignty of the individual over their own body. You know, a common argument in response to the Think of the Children campaign questioned that if only the children benefit, then why should Everyone, including the adults, have to drink it. Ultimately, the insinuation of, of communist infiltration resonated with a population that was gripped in a burgeoning Cold War and, and deep-seated concerns about the role of, of their government in their private lives. I mean, that there's the history, and that walks us through this the Red Scare conspiracy, but what about the, the control connection? You know, does... Does fluoride dull the mind and stunt intelligence, uh, providing control for the masses? You know, would other countries really adopt similar practices for their own populations? Though water regulations and guidelines have, have been in place for a long time in most countries, the, the legislation that controls water quality, safety, and regulation, it's actually quite new in many places. You know, in the United States, a sweeping amendment to existing legislation, uh, which would become known as the Clean Water Act, was passed in 1972, so almost 30 years after the implementation of water fluoridation. This stemmed from growing public awareness of the need for pollution control and the impact to drinking water supplies. You know, the, the, the 1970s saw water quality emerge as a polling topic in the U.S., with pollution concerns adding to the discussion of fluoride. There was a, a Roper poll that found two-thirds of the population considered their water supply at least somewhat at threat of being po polluted to unsafe levels. This continued into the 80s and the 90s, with at least a third of the population polled considering their water unsafe to drink. Oh, and... and and along with these polls that, that show doubt about the drinking water quality, a 2014 Pew poll indicated that less than a third of those polled uh, trusted their state governments to do the right thing in public health matters. In addition to, to water quality awareness and concerns, the, the research into long-term effects of fluoride continue. And, and there are some interesting things worth mentioning. You know, while organizations like the CDC report findings that show a reduction in tooth decay in areas following fluoridation over, over long periods, they fail to mention the, the, that in those instances of, of tooth decay uh, that, that it has trended downward all over, regardless of fluoridation. Uh, the World Health Organization reported findings that track tooth decay in 12-year-olds 
from 1970 to 2010 in eight countries, four of which fluoridate and four that do not. Now, in all countries, tooth decay trended downward, pretty much ending at similar points, which kind of uh, uh, detracts from the claim that it's the fluor- uh, fluoridation as a benefit. Now, instances, I mean, in an, let me add to that, instances and in severe, uh, and the severity of dental fluorosis in children is is increasing. So although we're seeing a reduction in tooth decay, we are seeing um, an, an increase in dental fluorosis. Um, and that was seen in a, uh, shown in a CDC study comparing 12 to 15 year olds uh, between 1986, 87 to those in 2004. Fluoride seems really to have had a negative effect on 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 average IQ and cognitive function as well in areas of high fluoridation. Uh, that was noted uh, in a Harvard study as well as studies uh, performed in in China. And finally, another biggie that I came across: fluoride builds up in uh, systems, builds up in your body, and it has been found in the pineal gland, which can in turn negatively affect pineal functions. Um, And that was also referenced in the report by the NRC. Um, You know, dental fluorosis is is bad. Dental fluorosis is the brittling and weakening of teeth, uh, of of your teeth. Um, So regardless of the strength of the enamel and the resistance to cavities, which are caused by bacteria, um, Basically, they break down from the, you know, inside out with fluorosis. Now, that's the inspiration really behind the uh, behind the conspiracy theories. But, you know, in truth, I know that most of us weren't even that aware or familiar with the uh, conspiracy theories. I mean, I don't think anybody really thinks anymore of the Nazi connection. And no one's really worried about the the communist plot, but fluoride remains a, a hot topic, right? Uh, and, and an issue of contention. So why does this fascinate us? You know, I mean, that's, that's the core of, of any of our discussions. Well, I came across an idea that, that could explain why this, this grabs hold and, and sticks into the public consciousness. And that is, something known as the precautionary principle. The precautionary principle is it's one of those golden rule class of guidelines that is meant to provide, through a very simple concept, uh, a guiding principle by which decisions and actions can be derived. The, the principle is used to justify discretionary decisions in situations where there is you know, a possibility of harm from making a certain decision. Uh, an example, taking a, a particular course of action, you know, in, in, in those moments when, when extensive scientific knowledge on the matter is lacking. This, this concept uh, surfaced in the 1980s as a, as a legislative concept, really out of Germany. And, and this, this principle implies that there is a, a, a social responsibility to protect the public from exposure to harm when scientific investigation is found a plausible risk. Now, these protections can be relaxed only if further scientific findings emerge that provide sound evidence that no harm will result. 
the core of the principle is often conveyed through um, aphorisms such as an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure and better safe than sorry. You know, from a from a public health policy perspective, that age-old medical principle of do no harm often applies. This seems pretty simple and straightforward, right? It's almost just a common sense approach. Well, it seems much of the world agrees, at least to some degree. You know, the, the European Union has made the precautionary principle statutory in, in some areas of law, and the United Nations has applied the principle in several global environmental treaties and agreements, such as the Montreal and the Kyoto Protocols. Application of the principle varies based on interpretation. It's basically a, a risk management approach, and, and it can be defined between a strong and a weak position. Strong precaution holds that regulation is, is required whenever there's a possible risk to health, safety, or the environment, even if the supporting evidence is speculative, and even if the economic costs of regulation are, are high, potentially. Now, whereas weak precaution holds that uh, a lack of scientific evidence does not preclude action, even if damage would otherwise be serious or, or irreversible. Now, ultimately, the jury is out as to the benefit and plausibility of applying the precautionary principle. A key criticism states, uh, the reason suggest suggested is that preventing innovation uh, from coming to market means that only current technology may be used, and current technology itself may cause harm or leave needs unmet. There is a risk of causing harm by blocking innovation. Now, eh, if all of this sounds familiar in context of our topic of fluoridation, well, it should. One On one side of the aisle, the singular benefit of fluoride to, to remineralize and strengthen tooth enamel, uh, thereby reducing cavity development, seems well proven. And of course, the benefit of dental health precipitates down into better nutrition and, and less susceptibility to infection. I mean, this is advancement with a tremendous potential benefit. If the argument stopped there, fluoridation would be prolific and almost universal in practice where possible. But when the precautionary principle is applied and risks of excessive fluoride intake is considered and continued research revealing more and more negative effects possible, the risk for some calls for discretion. You make these decisions every day when weighing risk versus benefit for everything you do. And for many, the, the fact that this principle is not being applied to fluoride, despite seemingly overwhelming evidence, is cause for suspicion and ulterior motives. Now, at this point, let's ask our questions, right? Let's put this through the endurance test. How long has this perception been around? Well, as we discussed, the, sus the suspicion of conspiracy, it's been around in some form or fashion since the 1950s and 60s. Controversy and opposition to the practice of water fluoridation, it's existed as long as the practice has been in place, since the beginning. Question two, has it had a large influence in popular culture and media? 
Yes, the influence in the media is notable. I mean, just do a web search for water fluoridation and you will pull up article after article discussing the controversy. It's even a trope within pop culture involving conspiracy. In the, in the, night, in the 2015 novel, The Great Forgetting by James Renner, which was a very good read. I recommend it. The protagonists uh, begin their journey of discovering the truth by boiling their water before drinking it, presumably to remove whatever has been added to cause them to forget. Number three is it's still relevant today. The issue is really as current and controversial as it was when it was introduced. And when Grand Rapids first started in 1945, the suspicions of conspiracy are perhaps less relevant. Uh, The more prominent issue involves the ongoing research to understand the impact of fluoride on the human body in various concentrations. And finally, will it continue to capture public imagination going forward? Yep, no one is going to stop needing to drink water anytime soon. It's kind of a thing. All right. Time to wrap this up. I mean, this is as good a place as any. And obviously, as you figured out, this is in no way an extensive discussion on the topic of water fluoridation and the controversy surrounding it. I'm sure I left out a ton and I apologize if I did. You know, I rewrote my show outline three times and delayed the release of this episode because it proved so challenging and so robust. There is a litany of discussion, research, rebuttal, litigation, and legislation to be found on the topic. And frankly, contrary to popular belief, this is not settled science. And that, that's ultimately the gist of it all. You know, there are conspiratorial musings and accusations regarding fluoride because there are more questions than answers. And our common sense subconscious risk management brains don't make sense of the practice. I mean, sure, you know, fluoride has been proven to provide a means of reducing tooth decay, and it is readily available. But it's not the only solution, and it's not necessarily the most efficient or direct method. Not only that, the risks that continue to be identified seem to more and more outweigh the benefits. Heck, the entire Practice is built on research that originally identified fluoride as a problem that needed to be removed, with the research to identify the benefits coming from a chemist employed by an aluminum manufacturer that had a vested interest in finding a culprit. And that's where the conspiracy theory comes in, I mean, and and why it resonates with the population. The reality is that calling it a conspiracy theory is simply a way of dismissing the opposition to what is actually a very real and legitimate ongoing scientific and political debate. Much of the world already abandoned the practice of water fluoridation, and those countries that still add fluoride all have a vocal opposition. Australia even has a political party formed over the issue. Okay, it's it's a small party, but it's it's established nonetheless, and it's because of that issue. Now, full disclosure, my family avoids fluoride. We use non-fluoridated toothpastes, and and we use a water filter that reduces fluoride in our drinking water. My kids haven't had any cavities yet. But it doesn't mean I disagree with the idea of promoting health when the evidence is there. Now listen, let's understand the fact that 
Fluoride is a naturally occurring element, and it's going to be found in water supplies at some concentration, whether you fluoridate or not. It's there. You are going to ingest it. And it's not going to kill you in the usually minuscule quantities naturally present. That said, it's proven that it builds in the system and there can be deleterious effects that can result. I mean, such as the harmless but unsightly modeling of teeth to the more severe skeletal fluorosis and brittleness of bones or the impact to pineal function in the brain. I mean, these are not small issues. The regulation around fluoride is all about maximums and safety limits. There are no guidelines about adding a required minimum, only about what levels you don't want to exceed. Does that sound like a harmless chemical? Oh, and and guidance given for water sources that exceed the maximums is to notify the public within a specified time, mainly because it's cost prohibitive to remove the fluoride concentrations. If public water fluoridation is such a profound scientific discovery, as claimed by the CDC, then why are more and more people moving to filtered bottled water or filtering tap water in efforts to remove the fluoride and chlorine, along with particulates and impurities? Seems like there is a commercial benefit to putting fluoride in the water, doesn't it? Oh, and... and Add to that, more and more communities are electing to stop water fluoridation. So maybe it is over the top to suspect nefarious plots to indoctrinate the public to social medicines, or that the government is trying to chemically placate an entire population. But when the practice goes against your internal risk management, your subconscious precautionary principle, then... It's no wonder the mind moves towards suspicion. Maybe there just needs to be a a better study, marketing, and education. I mean, maybe fluoride is safe, and maybe we just need to quit questioning the powers that be and accept exactly what we are told without protest. Or maybe that's already the idea. Okay. That is all for today. Thanks so much for joining me again. Please click that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion. As always, connect with me via email, contact at conspiracytheoryology.com. Join the Facebook group. Find me on Twitter, at TheoryologyPod, or just recommend the show to others. As I say, there is no higher compliment than to know that you have shared the show with others. All of this info can be found at the show website, conspiracytheoryology.com, including how to support the podcast on Patreon. Music is by Adam Henry Garcia. If you'd like to hear more, visit adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. All right, I will see you again next time when we will tackle another theory and make sense of the public popularity. So until then, remember... Beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.